0: 1996, author David Foster Wallace released his magnum opus, Infinite Jest. It was praised as a masterpiece, opposed to the post-modern deconstruction of the American novel. Unfortunately, it's really not very good. The book everyone swears they'll get to one day that they've been preached at by literary nerds for years, well now, that day has come. Join me in Jesse Grant on a begrudging book club of my least favorite novel, on the I Hate Infinite Jest podcast. Episode 2, Steve Clark. Okay, here we are, episode 2 of the I Hate Infinite Jest podcast, and here we are with guest number 2, Mr. Steve Clark. How are you doing, Steve?
1: hey i'm great it's it's really exciting to to be talking about this book book again so yeah i'm I'm excited to be here
0: nice well yeah well let's uh let's start right off tell us who you are what your thing is if you have anything to promote. I know that's a weird thing to ask in these times when you know live anything is uh kind of kiboshed, but uh you know just tell us who you are tell us how you got into the book what do you love about it
1: yeah so uh i'm uh I don't really have anything to promote, but I'll start out by saying, uh, I've, read, I've read this book three times now.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. And
1: uh, humble brag. <laughs> and <laughs> I, I first read it my first year out of college. And I got to say that like something about postmodernism in general jumped out at me. And I really liked it. And I just became like a David Foster Wallace fanboy, like the kind on the last episode that uh, Daniel Ostroff said he does not like. I think <laughs> I was definitely there. You know, I read all his stuff. I, I read his biography. I, I read some criticism. And I've kind of moved on to a point now where uh, I can see how kind of silly that is. But um, yes, but I, but I still... I love the book. It's my favorite book ever. Um, I get that it's, it's very, it's, you know, it's funny because you, you say everyone likes it. I think everyone, my, my impression is everyone hates it. Um, not everyone, but there's a lot of people who hate on it and it seems like it's, it's become a, a thing nowadays to, to hate on it.
0: Well, we're, we're saying different types of everyone, just cause I would say in like, Our modern peer group, as guys, I don't know what you are, but I'm, you know, early 30s. I first tried reading this in my early 20s. I think, as far as our peer group, it, uh, I don't know, I I feel like it's almost changed a little bit because it started out, I feel like people treated it like the big masterful tome that like everybody has to read, but a lot of people don't get around to. But I think now there's been enough backlash against it i'd like to be a little hipster and say i was backlashing against it before it was cool but uh you, you hear like david foster wallace fans get a little bit of hate now like i i mentioned in the first episode a big part of the reason i ended up with the girlfriend i'm with right now is she had right there in like her online dating profile like do not tell me to read this fucking book please
1: it's funny you say that because I dated a girl who um did some stand up. Mm-hmm. She's a Nigerian girl. And I only say that because um
0: Oh, you date of, you date black girls. Aren't you <laughs> the vet?
1: No, but one of her uh yes, I am. But also uh, <laughs> one of her uh one of her aren't I progressive. But one of her first comments to me, I had a quote from from Dave Foster Wallace in my Tinder profile just to tell you the kind of ob- obnoxious that I am mm. or that I can be. <laughs> and she said, uh, I've always wanted to read infinite jest. And I like took the bait. I was like, Oh my God, really? And she said, yeah. So I could have something to talk about my future douchebag, white boyfriend. It's wow. Great, like, yeah, it was a great, just like, I, so thought I, she, can... I, I thought she was super into it and she just like took the wind out of me. It was a, it was a great joke.
0: So I can only assume you two are married now and have several children. Oh,
1: we're still we're still friends like we're still friendly. Um, it was just it was just a really funny like I get it. Uh, I'm going to take this quote out of my profile now kind of thing.
0: But when I said before the everyone thing again, I don't think I would have beef with this book so much if it was just like a little culty book that like you know some people liked. But it was the, I was astonished that like it got rave reviews when it came out and a a lot of my issue with this book is really just my bafflement that i i don't i don't understand what you're getting out of it buddy which would be whatever but it seems like a lot of like you know in literary circles it's considered like a masterful reworking of the american novel and that's why we're doing this whole podcast to just figure out like what the fuck am i missing
1: yeah, so um I want to I want to talk about a couple of things. One of them is the plot cuz I think there is there and I think we'll get to that. Mm-hmm. Um I want to bring up a couple things, if that's all right before Go for before it. we kind of jump into the um so there's this uh there's this book by a really great author named Don DeLillo. You ever read any Don DeLillo? I have not. <clears throat> so he's really interesting, really unique, but he, he has a book called Underworld and he has another book called White Noise. Mm-hmm. That uh in, in the book, White Noise, there's this barn called the Most Photographed Barn in America. And he goes to visit it. There's a professor who goes to visit it with a cultural critic. Mm-hmm. And he talks about how no one actually sees the barn. And um, how they're just seeing this image of a barn or this idea of a barn. That they're going there because it doesn't have any outstanding traits. The only trait that it has is that other people have seen it and taken pictures of it. Mm-hmm. And so like no one can see the actual barn. They just have this image in their head. And I kind of think something similar is true of infinite jest. I think like it's hard to come to it without prejudice. You right. know, it's hard to come to it without a, a preconception. Mm-hmm. And I, I can totally understand having these moments where you're like, Jesus Christ, just shut up. DFW like Mm -hmm. he goes goes on and on describing like you know the outside of Enfield uh of the treatment center
0: he goes in deep in the section by the way this we're going to be doing pages 33 to 60 this week for y'all reading along at home that'll be there in the title but yeah there's a good couple pages that are just describing the ventilation system at Enfield Tennis Academy
1: yeah I thought I thought that, um, and it's it's more, so in that chapter, there's a little bit more. We'll get into that. Oh, yeah. There, we get some characterization of how. There's some really cool moments. But yeah, I can I can totally understand you being like, screw this. Um, but he also has these moments where like, I think he kind of takes your breath away with what he observed. And I think Daniel Ostrop did a great job. Listen to that episode if you haven't mm-hmm. uh, to the listener out there because he does such a great he he said a lot of things that I would have said or would have liked to say um and I think he did a, a phenomenal job you guys both did a phenomenal job on that episode right um, but he talks about being a wandering eye um you know David Foster Wallace is being like a wandering eye and I I think that's true um but like can I read a quote to you from David Foster Wallace
0: please be, be my guest
1: this is from an essay and I think some, a lot I think the better way to come to it DFW is through his essays. I think he's a lot more readable.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But uh, he has this quote that I think is just so, he's talking about Kafka. And a lot of the things that he writes essays about, he's just a fan, like Mary Austin, who you talked about, or right. Dave, David Lynch. He's just a fan of David Lynch. you know. And he has a famous quote where he's like, David Lynch, uh, Quentin Tarantino is interested in cutting off someone's ear. David Lynch is interested in the ear. Like mm-hmm. just like great moments like that. And he talks about Kafka, in terms of like him being funny. And he says this great thing about it. Uh, It's not that students, when he's he's, you know, he's a literature teacher, he's a writing teacher. It's not that students don't get Kafka's humor, but that we've taught them to see humor as something you get the same way we've taught them that a self is something you just have. No wonder they cannot appreciate the really central Kafka joke, that the horrific struggle to establish a human self results in itself, who, whose humanity is inseparable from that horrific struggle. That our endless and impossible journey toward home is in fact our home. It is hard to put into words up at the blackboard, believe me. You can tell them that maybe it's good they don't get Kafka. You can ask them to imagine his art as a kind of door, and this is really cool. To envision us readers coming up and pounding on this door, pounding and pounding, not just wanting admission, but needing it. We don't know what it is, but we can feel it. This total desperation to enter, pounding and pushing and kicking, etc. That finally Ooh. the door opens and it opens outward. We've been inside what we wanted all along. It's really cool. So he's got he's yeah. got moments. He's got moments like that where just the the beauty of what he's describing kind of takes your breath away. In my opinion. Uh, that being said, I can also see uh coming to that and being like well that's a pretentious load of bs but i think it's a i, I it's funny because you you look at infinite gesture like look at this pretentious uh tome but if you look at his career it's really his attempt to get away from pretentiousness and he almost can't help going back into it and being like look at how smart i am with mm. like the dr- the description of the drugs and the footnotes there's like you know however many pages of drugs and so you see a lot of like this look how smart I am and he can't get away from that. But the early part of his career is just like, I'm smarter than everybody else. Look at how smart my fiction is. With Infinite Jest, he's trying to do something more, I think. He's trying to write a book that speaks to uh, the reader's imagination and challenges us to, to learn how to be better readers and also learn and grow in the way that we do with other novels.
0: Okay. Okay. Um, oh, sorry. Okay, no, the, uh, everything's working. I was just double checking something there for a second. No, all right. I I, I see what you're. Uh, I see what you're getting at. Again, I just I am not finding it in here just yet, but I'm hoping it comes to us. Uh,
1: and right. I'm not. I'm not a big spoiler person, but I don't think it matters so much with this book. Mm-hmm. Um, like I think that we're coming out of a stage where we realized that something has happened to Hal, right? Like something right. We, we can something. tell
0: that we can tell that definitely from the first chapter and what we see of him later on. That there is something about Hal that he is not what he once was. We see that in the first chapter with it seems like his family, CT in particular, in that admissions meeting is trying to like cover up and like you know get him through the gate without them asking any questions, right. but it's very obvious something is very wrong with Hal, and we don't know what that is yet.
1: But throughout the rest of the book, and you know, most of the book, most of the plot takes place in that one month period. Most of the action of the book is like November, year of the de- depend adult undergarment. Uh, most of the action of the book takes place in that. And he's, he's, he is what he is at that point. But another way to look at this book is it follows like a Hamlet arc, I don't know if that's the the right literary term for it, but and I don't, have you have you read Hamlet? Are you familiar with Hamlet?
0: I'm I'm familiar with Hamlet, and you know the overall uh, crippling, like, crippling anxiety to decide anything. Lethal. Yeah, right.
1: So that's that's how right. He's he's kind of Hamlet. Mm-hmm. His his uncle and his mom sort of have like a weird love affair. There's oh, this. Okay. There's am
0: Not there yet.
1: Yeah, I'm sorry. No, that's fine. That's fine. Uh, there's this this understanding that. Mario is kind of probably their love child. Hmm. Um, There's the dad's kind of mysterious death. And this, a lot of the book is his dad trying to find a way to communicate with him, which you saw in that one chapter that you did with uh, Daniel last week.
0: Right. Where he's masturbating Um, as the conversational therapist. the Conversationalist.
1: (laughs) Right. And then you get, you know, we get to, um, I, do, you, I, do you want to get to the the pages?
0: Yeah, let's let's get to that. So we're starting at page thirty three in our edition. This is year of the depend adult undergarment, and the very first thing here is we're dealing with the medical attaché to Prince Q, the Saudi Minister of Home Entertainment. Uh, is there anything you want to fill in here? I have a brief little thing I wrote up along with this.
1: Tell me, tell me what you what you think is. Is happening well, so uh, it's, it's kind of like Netflix, like uh, it's like a precursor to Netflix. Oh,
0: thing. all right, the film cards. yeah, the, in,
1: the interlace. Like, you can kind of it. I, I think Daniel pointed this out, it doesn't really matter what it looks like so much as just understanding, like,
0: right, just understanding the concept that it's it, it's an overreaching. I looked at more as like an analog YouTube, like on YouTube, yeah. you can get everything of any variety. Yeah you can get an album you can get an exercise thing only instead of it just existing in the cloud they're in individual cartridges yeah so but uh we have this with the medical attaché for uh yeah he is he's taking care of the prince's wife am i correct or i
1: don't remember <laughs> Hurt, to be honest with you, and I don't know that it matters.
0: Well, um, I, know, I know it says the prince only eats. It, this is the medical attaché talking. What he knows about them. The prince only eats Toblerone on Wednesday. David Foster Wallace seems to have a thing for Toblerone. I've probably. read. A, I've read a few of his things, and it comes up uh He talks about his, it. It sounds prince,
1: like a. Sounds like a pinky out kind of candy, doesn't it? Like a. It's like
0: it does, a. Does a little bit, a little. Yeah. I think Toblerone's like the pyramid-shaped one. It's like a long pyramid. Uh, He says, yeah, but he eats that on Wednesday when his wife has Arab Women's Advanced League Tennis Night. Um, Uh, Again, I, I, I write these notes as I'm reading, and a literal note I have in here is, suck my fucking dick, you first draft aggrandizing hack. This is a painful read for me. I'll be, I'm trying to uh, ends with. I, a...
1: It's it's gotta be torturous doing eleven hundred pages, man, and and a lot of them are footnotes that seem like they don't matter. It's gotta be hard,
0: right? So all right, the the, the so we we come back to this character at another point, the medical attaché to Prince Q and his wife. Uh, he is settling down, and he's watching a. Uh, uh, he's watching a film cartridge and when we revisit him a little later in this little section it seems to be hinted that he has fallen prey to what will come to be known as the entertainment yeah so
1: so this book was almost called the failed entertainment Mm
0: -hmm.
1: um there's a bar in. have you heard of Hop saints yes they used to have a drink named the failed entertainment after Ah. uh after this book um but and I again, I don't know what your what your spoiler.
0: Uh, I've I've already hinted that there is something that's gonna just because again we're in the early chunks of a massive book where you kind of need to tease a little bit of what's coming. So yeah, how how would you describe the entertainment as as we should know it at this point in the book? Obviously, don't give away if there's anything about it, its maker or whoever. Just the general theme of what this plot device is.
1: So I'll say a couple things. I'll say, first of all, that um, there's a big theme that comes up here for me, which is this idea, which I could see myself doing, like you go to work all day, you work hard, so that you have that little bit of time for entertainment at the end of the day. It's Mm -hmm. kind of like you work all week. And the end goal is that like sitting down in front of the TV, or whatever your form of entertainment is, like it could be drugs, it could be drinking, it could be uh, TV, it could be music. Right. So, you're, like
0: you're winding yourself up all day just to unwind at the correct. end. Correct.
1: So, like that's like the goal is that's where you want to get to. And so there's this question of like, well, what else is there to life beyond that? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that 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 comes up tangentially here. But so the 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 entertainment, this film, is supposed to be so. And it's supposed to be so enthralling that all you want to do is watch it forever. So the medical attache is the first victim of the entertainment. He's watching it and he just keeps putting it back on. So you see him like there's there's some pages where he's like crapping himself and because and, he doesn't want to leave. All he wants to do is watch it, doesn't care about anything else that's happening to him. And
0: it is it is entertained and captivated him enough that it has essentially just crippled him mind body and spirit. Correct. Okay. It.
1: I mean. So like, you can cut this out. I would say spoiler alert here. Okay. The the movie is Infinite Jest. It's called Infinite Jest.
0: Right. Okay. I knew so, that. I did. So hear.
1: the the entertainment is Infinite Jest. So like. There's the book Infinite Jest, but the the movie is called Infinite Jest, and it it was made by and again spoiler alert House Father. Mm. So, um, so yeah it's it's a really it's a really important part of a couple of different of the kind of side plots.
0: Right. Okay. Yeah, I know that's something that's going to come to bear on everything else. There. Um, all right. Jumping ahead to the next little chapter, gotta admit, this one is pretty. I'm, I'm gonna be pretty hard on old DFW here because Year of the Trial Size Dove Bar he just kind of puts on blackface for two pages. And yeah, it's bad, it's, it's, my,
1: it's, it's, my, it's my least favorite section of the book.
0: Okay, Please. so j- j- just for the listener out there, again, Foster <sighs> Wallace son of a philosophy professor and a literature professor himself. And uh, this is what he has. I, I am not being racist. I am just reading this from the page.
1: Yeah, read it. Read it. Read it in your... Just read it. Just read it. Yeah. Go for it.
0: Reginald say, wadeen say her mama ain't treat her right. Say her mama beat wadeen with a hanger. Say, wadeen mama man, Roy Tony be want to lie down with wadeen <laughs> Give wadeen a cambium fives. So that for three pages, that's... It, uh,
1: it's terrible. It's my least favorite section of the book.
0: Now, uh, I, I got to be Ostrov kind of pardoned that for me a little bit by just saying that this is kind of the backstory for a character to come. Who said that? Ostrov? Ostrov, yeah. Which I'm yeah. Not sure if that's Wardine who's going to show up.
1: Or... Yeah, well, so there's a couple of main settings for the book, right? mm
0: mm-hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. There's, and, um, and where we are right now, we've so far only really had the Tennis Academy. So, yeah, so there's, that's all we've really hit so far.
1: There's the Tennis Academy, not far from the Tennis Academy. There's a, um, which we're going to get to, mm-hmm. there's a, a, a halfway house. So a good portion of the book takes place at the halfway house. So the character you saw in that little marijuana, silly, like, story where he just orders so much pot and he's waiting for it to come right um that character this character warden we're gonna find them at the the uh halfway house okay not not too far into the book i mean they're not Huge characters, but we see these characters again.
0: Right, and I can appreciate <clears throat> that as like painting a broader scape of the people. Yeah. Like if we're going to meet these characters and he wants a backstory but doesn't necessarily want to follow them down their own hall for that little thing. Yeah. Uh, this chapter also splits with a sudden story of a high school student named Bruce Green. Yep who has uh, an interest in a fellow eighth grader named Mildred Bonk. Bonk. That's a great name. right? Mildred Bonk sounds like if your grandmother somehow found her way into prostitution and that was the best thing <laughs> to come up with.
1: Well, it's kind of like one of those names where I think he describes her as being like super hot.
0: And... Uh, well, the, 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 <laughs> li- the line I have here, which again, this is, it, it reads <laughs> to me. She was the kind of fatally pretty and nubile wraith-like figure who glides through the sweaty junior high corridors of ever nocturnal, every nocturnal emitter's dreamscape.
1: There you go.
0: That's, <laughs> that, that sounds like a cradle of filth lyrics, only without all the blood. So <laughs> so
1: we're, we're also going to see them at, uh, at the halfway house.
0: Oh yeah, that we get, actually get a very quick epilogue for them out of nowhere. Uh, it says that Bruce Green and Mildred did end up together, but they were more or less like drop out white trash, had a kid by 20. So that's that's where we leave them until we find them again.
1: again. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: from here we come again to another year of the Depend adult Undergarment. W- what is he trying to say with the name of the years? So... I think
1: that I am. Um, I- I'm hesitant to spoil. Um, okay,
0: we don't. We 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 don't have to then.
1: I'll just say. Let me put it like this. Okay. There's a lot. There's a lot in the book about advertising and mm-hmm. the future of advertising. So imagining the future of advertising, right? So like, imagining what's possible with like a Netflix. How would you advertise when there's not commercials? Mm-hmm. So it comes into play later in the book and okay. you'll you'll start you'll start to understand it a little bit more but it it has to do with advertising.
0: Okay. Again, this is just another one of those things that gives me pause just cuz like okay, let me let, let me give you a a good example. Um I love a lot of like prog rock, prog metal, like weird time signatures, big concept albums. But there is a thing in prog rock which people tend to turn against immediately, which is <clears throat> every prog rock band at one point will write a song with a story in it about a future where music is outlawed man and it's something that fans of the genre turn on so quickly because it is like first draft first idea like this shouldn't have gotten this far yeah and and i'm seeing a lot of 90s isms with this book and thinking very much reality bites I could almost see that, like you know, what's next? They're gonna have the the honeycomb Cheerios, you know, of the month kind of thing. Like that is what it feels like. Just I don't know. Maybe it, it, I'm going to take I'm going to take this with a grain of salt and hope it makes a greater point later on. And also, just give the fairness that for all I know in the '90s, this he was the first guy to make that observation and prediction. Just saying, from here in 2020, that seems a little, you know.
1: No, I think that's a reasonable criticism.
0: Okay, but uh, all right, we have year of the depend adult undergarment. Uh, a sleepover style conversation between Hal and his brother Mario. I have. Uh, th- th- they discuss atheism.
1: Oh yeah, and there's the there's the great joke in there. How do you describe a dyslexic, agnostic, insomniac? Oh, it... someone who stays up all night torturing themselves over whether or whether not, there not there is a dog.
0: dog. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen it. Uh, I think it's Kids in the Hall. I actually, have a great sketch about that. Have you ever seen the one I'm talking about?
1: Uh, I don't think so.
0: Pretty much, it's, it's
1: I know Kids in the Hall a little bit, but not not super well.
0: It's it's the judges of like a a dog breed contest, and you come and meet them as they're like really vexed and perplexed about what to do. Like I don't know, read the submission again. Let's just check. And he reads it out loud, like, I would like to enter into the contest my god spot. And they take it super seriously, like, is this really a deity that's being entered? And of course it ends with, it was an actual god, and everybody is sacrificed at the end of it, but...
1: (laughs) That's pretty funny. Hmm. That's
0: great. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean,
1: and I I think uh, Dan touched on this, but Mario is... One of the most, probably the most likable character in the
0: book. Right, that he's a a pretty decent guy overall. Yeah, and
1: he he. If
0: I if I understand his his role at Enfield is he's like one of the videographers. Yeah,
1: he's like pretty good at filming stuff. Okay. So like he's he's pretty he's he his his father sort of showed him the ropes and brought him around. Um. And he helped his his father, who was like this, um, really really pretty good um, filmographer.
0: Right. Uh, I, can, he, I can I can just yeah. see that in reading the footnote that we're getting pretty close to his filmography. That kind of details.
1: It's 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 funny. His filmography. There's a lot of funny uh, and interesting moments in there, and it sort of is parallel to David Foster Wallace and this like. Let me show you how smart and brilliant I am.
0: Mm. And then like,
1: let me try to do something of value, you know, Mm. like, so like it it sort of comes, comes into that.
0: Okay. Again, when, when I was talking with you about setting this podcast up, I remember you saying to me, like, what if you end up liking it to which I I, I would be the best arc of this entire thing. And I, I, I love, I love people and artists who swing big. So if he gets me by the end of this, I will. I will be amazed and very happy with this experiment. So
1: here's what I kind of predict. I don't. I don't predict that. I, I don't. I'm not going to predict either way whether or not you're going to like it. Mm-hmm. My assumption is that you're, you're going to get to the end and be like, "I could have done without that." But I think there are going to be moments where you're like, "Wow, that that really took my breath away." Okay. And it's it's for me like those moments are worth it.
0: Mm-hmm. You know. Right. Like I saw a pretty good line here that uh, one of them talking on atheism atheism saying, I'll say God seems to have a kind of laid back management style I'm not crazy about. Like, okay, that's I I, I like little yeah. observations like that, little little Tom Waitsy, you know, God's away on business type. Yeah. Thing. Um in this little mini chapter, they first hint on the fact that himself, the father, uh James, right? Yeah. He is no longer around and that the moms did not seem to mourn him too much. That would fall into the Hamlet thing, I think, that you were saying.
1: Yeah. There's also a really – I forget exactly what it is or if they just hinted it. Orin is sort of separate. And we'll get to Orin in a second. But he's sort of separate from the family. And there's this weird, like, you get the sense that something happened with Orin and the moms too. Mm-hmm. and they you know they call him himself and they call her the moms is because she can be like multiple places at once right so it's like or it seems like she's everywhere at once so there's more than one of her
0: right and the himself <clears throat> was kind of showing his level of prestige in the family as in the man himself
1: yeah like i think it's just like it was an inside joke between Orin and uh between Orin and uh, Hal, and he, and then Mario kind of tries to join in, and he does. And you know, Hal—if Hal loves anyone in the book, it's it's Mario. Like he loves Mario kind of unconditionally.
0: Okay, yeah, I'm um, looking forward to more from Mario. Um, okay, that chapter ends talking about the medical attaché is still watching the unlabeled entertainment cartridge. Yep. And then from there, we get into October, Year of the Depend Adult Undergarment. And now we get a full little chapter uh, starring our good friend, Oren, in Candenza. Remind me, where is he in the birth order? Is he the oldest of the He's three? He's the oldest. All right, so it's Oren, Mario, Hat. He- Hat. He- I don't know why I said hail for a second. <laughs> but uh, so... so or- oh, go ahead.
1: No, so uh, just another I'm not a thing that you're going to find obnoxious that I just want... I didn't know if you would figure this out or if you would hear this from anybody else but the, sh- the book is supposed to be structured or at least it, he tried to structure it in the same format as a fractal
0: yeah that, that infuriates me and i don't <laughs> i don't understand it, and it makes me angry but yeah no. so it, maybe you could explain that a little bit what's what was the specific thing like the circuit is something like serbian sounding name the serbski triangle or something oh i don't know okay I don't know.
1: yeah <laughs> i don't know
0: but how, how what, what exactly does that mean trying to organize a novel by fractals
1: well i know he's like a math guy and i know that like that's like it's another obnoxious kind of intellectual ism of it that like you could come to it and see it from that perspective that it's supposed to be like a beautiful structure or something
0: mm. i don't know like oh, I know, I, I know Tool has done that with uh, music, where they tried to, they tried to write song, uh, they tried to write a song with the time signatures of like the Fibonacci sequence ratios. Uh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's definitely cool. to look at. so but all right, so Oren, what we have here is you said he, Tool did that. Tool did that with one of oh, their cool. albums. I think it's on Lateralis. But uh, Oren is a punter in the NFL for the Arizona Cardinals, and when we meet him here, he is in Arizona. Uh, Apparently, he's a very, very good one. He was traded for a lot of other players and cash.
1: The story of how he became a punter is really interesting and cool.
0: Okay. Well, (laughs) they hint that he has a physical disparity. Now, I wasn't aware whether this was as a result of his punting or what led to him becoming a punter, but it seems to say that his appendages on one side dwarf the other side.
1: Yeah, so he just just works out his one leg because he punts with the one leg. That's all that means.
0: Oh, okay. Well, I didn't. I didn't. Yeah. <clears throat> no. No. No.
1: Yeah. No. That makes sense. It, it's a reasonable question.
0: Okay. But uh, uh, he
1: also, you also see him, uh, <clears throat> kind of obnoxiously referring to women as subjects. Yeah. And the only women that he kind of sleeps with are women who have kids. Like they're like divorced or like they're married. Like just like single mothers. There's, that's the only kind of woman that he he tends to go for.
0: Sounds like and a so good strategy to me.
1: <laughs> well, there's this weird, like, he's got all these strategies for how to meet women that are really funny and super involved. And it's just kind of, it's just really sad. You know, he's really, he's really broken. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> um, to, to repeat what Dan said, but he, something happened with him and the moms Okay, um, that has caused him to kind of want to separate from the family.
0: Um, okay. And he seems to, I mean, out of the boys, he definitely seems to be the most independent, The you know, young sports star. Yeah. Uh, but he's also the oldest, the other, I mean, at least how, we see he's still in the academy, so he wouldn't really be in a place. Um, mentioned something about how the moms had a historic fear of germs and being unhygienic. Yeah. And although Orin hasn't inherited these traits, the closest he has is he does hate roaches. And he stomped one once in the shower, of which was so revolting that he never quite cleaned up the spatter from it. And threw out the the shoes rather than cleaning the roach guts off of them. That's just, dude, if you're you're a millionaire punter, that's just what you do, right? right? And so what
1: he does is he 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 takes...
0: Oh yeah, yeah. His torture chambers. Tell us all about them. I like that. Yeah. So
1: he just takes like the ma- uh, uh, like a mason jar type thing, and puts it over the the roach and kind of watches it suffocate and die instead mm-hmm. of splattering it because um, right, they that, just they just tend to be everywhere.
0: Yeah. The detail they have here is he has so many overturned glasses on his on his floor with uh, roaches asphyxiating in them that he has difficulty walking around the apartment without knocking them over.
1: <laughs> it's pretty funny, yeah
0: um I have a line here I thought interesting from Oren, uh the worst mornings with cold floors and hot windows and merciless light, the sole certainty that the day will have to be not traversed but sort of climbed yeah. and then yeah. going to sleep again at the end of it will be like falling again off something tall and sheer, which does sound very much related to where we are with the um the film cartridges of just, you know, going through that huge slog of life. What exactly is it for? What is the reward at the end but to fall off the end and begin in the new?
1: Yeah, and his kind of, like, the thing that that drives him kind of tends to be, like, those subjects, it seems like. Like, mm. that's what he's, like, addicted to is the the women and figuring out ways to, to manipulate them.
0: Nice. Right. I uh, have a little note here, says that himself also ran away as an unhappy youngster to the Southwest. That's where Oren is now. <clears throat> yeah, there's a great
1: uh, a great portion of this is just himself's father. Like, I'm, it'll say I'm, like I'm 1964 waiting, or something.
0: I'm waiting for that soliloquy. I've already had a person I reached out to to be on this episode specifically request that segment so he can talk about that.
1: Yeah, there's... um yeah it's a really cool section um but yeah so like he didn't have a great childhood or or the happiest of childhoods so he himself is kind of this prodigy in in several different areas you know
0: mm-hmm. first
1: in in tennis and then later in in other things um like film is like the last thing that he's like really good at he just so there's there's this uh this another theme in the book is like let's say you reach the goal of what you want it to get to, mm-hmm. right? Like you want it to get published. Okay. You wanted to make the NFL. You want it to be the best director. Let's say you got there and what now, you know? So like mm-hmm. does what happens once you reach that summit, like is that an end in itself? Like, is there happiness there? Or have you maybe missed part of the point? So there's that, that question that we see with himself, who, who is wildly successful, but also wildly unhappy. Right. And same thing with Oren, wildly successful, but extremely unhappy and, and broken.
0: Mm, yeah, no, that's one of those things I can identify <clears throat> with and I think is uh, definitely a lesson not enough people get. It, strangely enough, well, not strangely enough, the reason most people don't get it is I feel like most people never really hit that pinnacle of success it's yeah. easy enough to dream about it. Like, oh, one day I'll reach this major plateau. The problem being, like, you know, once you win that championship, guess what? You need to defend it all the fucking time. You're yeah. What you're really striving for is to be under even more pressure. Once once you've obtained it, you have to maintain it, which is a hundred times harder.
1: Sure. So there's that, that question that's kind of um, struggled with throughout this book of, like, you know, What is success? What does success look like? Um, To, you know, put it simply, I guess. Mm -hmm. It's pretty cool.
0: Yeah. So we got a footnote here. Number two, Uh, Oren is going to tell us about some of his dreams. And the footnote tells us that Oren has never gone to a therapist. So these analyses of his dreams are entirely his own interpretation.
1: Yeah, it's pretty. He's like, yeah, he's pretty surface level like there's a lot that you can as a reader read into that he doesn't really realize right um, so there's a lot of that with oren where it's right. like you can see it but he can't necessarily
0: okay so uh they have here from the book <clears throat> he dreams of playing tennis matches with his mother's face strapped tight to his own quote as if the mom's head was some sort of overtight helmet oren can't wrestle his way out of and, uh, during one of his one night stands with a subject while sleeping, a subject complained that he had tried grabbing and removing her head like a helmet in his sleep says in his sleep, the decapitation was more clean with no stump as if his mother's head was <laughs> wall, resting on her shoulders. That was actually a, a, a nice visual. I've had weird ass dreams like that. Actually, you ever have that? You're having like a violent dream and then you strike somebody and their head just pops off like a Lego top. <laughs>
1: Usually it's me that gets hurt and and when I'm like I'm kicking or something and I kick the wall, you know. ah, That's usually what happens for me.
0: I always I I get those freaking ones where like somebody is really threatening you in a dream and you go to punch them and it's just like the weakest punch you could have ever thrown. (laughs) I feel like everybody has those at some point. Or I wonder I wonder if MMA guys or boxers get those or like if they're confident enough that even in dreams they still just beat the shit out of people
1: i would i would love to know i would love to be on that end of it
0: what what are mike tyson's (coughs) nightmares of i think i think that's a podcast in and of itself we gotta find tyson's nightmares tyson's nightmares that's right that
1: would be a great podcast
0: his pigeon his pigeon leave him all alone
1: imagine david foster wallace trying to do the voice of Mike Tyson <laughs> like trying to write out in text an in infinite jazz trying to trying to make a character that's based on Mike Tyson it would just be like the most racist <laughs> blackface <laughs> thing ever you could think of <laughs> it's why like you can't do like cuz it's you said blackface like black voice is a thing too it's like mm. it's just a hard thing to to, to do well like you need to need does not nail it at all.
0: No. Uh, you know what's funny? I was surprised he never got in trouble for it. On uh, Chris Titus's podcast, he had four years where he just had, like, a character he talked to on the show that was, it was just black voice. But he used some specific filter that it actually sounded like a different guy. Oh, and, wow. Yeah, and then he just dropped him one day, like, maybe along the lines of, like, this is probably going to catch up with me. That's not, not a good thing. <laughs>
1: I also think things being funny sort of tend to justify themselves Agreed. So like or like if it's whatever so like if if it's funny, it's like, okay, cool, you can mm-hmm. say whatever you want, you know like Anthony Jeselnik can kind of say whatever he wants because it's funny um for the most part, or a lot of it is, so if it's funny, it's like it doesn't necessarily matter how offensive it is to some extent.
0: Yeah, I know. Yeah. There's, there's the whole concept of punching, which, you know, jokes aren't punches, but the punching up versus punching down to which, yeah. say, like, well, doing doing a silly, over-the-top, exaggerated voice in what, who, who is receiving that blow, you know?
1: Yeah, correct.
0: Um, so I have here, Oren says that a subject recently put on a film cartridge while he pretended to sleep on schizophrenia. Um, He will be doing a profile for Moment Magazine, including research and interview done with him, Oren, and on his background. So uh, that's
1: another somewhat major character Um, who's going to come and do the interview.
0: Okay, yeah, that seemed to be hinting at something to come.
1: Oren's ex-wife is also, she's probably the third biggest character in the book.
0: Oh, is that, is that Hallie?
1: That is um so Hal is Halley.
0: Oh, okay, okay. I have so, I have I have a note here that said uh the quote was the unexamined stress of which the profile which drives him to start calling Halley again, reopen that whole Pandora's box of worms. So yeah, so, so, so he'll call Hal. Okay.
1: Um he'll call Hal, and there'll just be these chapters and footnotes that are just conversations between them. Um and they kind of pick at each other the way brothers do it's it's kind of funny but um yeah there's another that i would say that's the third major character in the book the third major storyline is his ex-wife who okay. you're, gonna, you're gonna meet soon
0: okay um we're on to the next chapter again you're the dependent old undergarment and this is where we have hal in Kandenza is smoking marijuana out of a one hitter in a secluded place amongst the ventilation equipment known as the lung at the Enfield Tennis Academy, all of which is explained ad finitum. Uh, Not only the makings of one-hitters, why brass one-hitters are not probably the best, and uh, all that shit. We also get a lot of footnotes. Anything in particular you want to hit on here, because I know we have a lot, there's a lot that he just threw into this chapter. Yeah, so I'll
1: say a couple things. One is we see here how described as, like, not necessarily – so he is addicted to to pot, but uh, uh, more so it says he's addicted to the secrecy. Mm -hmm. And there's a a cool quote about, like, he knows way more about it uh, than he does about why he's obsessed with it. Mm-hmm. And how that seems to like plague his generation, um, and I, I think that's that's kind of an interesting idea that he, he knows more about like pot itself than he does about why he's doing it. Like he doesn't understand why he's doing it; he's just doing it. Right. Um, and so I think that was a cool cool reflection. Um, but yeah, I think that we see they call it the lung, I guess, right. so the, this area kind of underneath the courts. Uh, or surrounding the courts. And we we see some action in the book taking place in this part. Okay. He also, he just yeah. loves hiding this from his mom. Like he mm-hmm. loves hiding it from his mom and his uncle Charles, uh, who is the, like the, you know, the president of the the tennis academy or whatever it is. He's in charge. Right. Um, it,
0: it, it says that grandpa James and CT were both former administrators at the, at the, at his tent field at, Enfield Tennis Academy. I fucking yeah, Tabis.
1: Tabis is he's the administ- He's the main administrator. Okay. I think Incandenza used to be like the headmaster. I think uh-huh. now it's Tab. It's Tabis. So there's that. Uh, you know, again that Hamletian arc of the uncle mm-hmm. coming in. Or the there's
0: half- uh, Hamletian, I've never heard that use of it, but I like Hamletian Yeah, I don't, I don't
1: know. If, I don't know if that's the right word, but it's no.
0: It is from now on. I I decree it Hamletian
1: it's, it's pretentious enough to fit with the conversation.
0: Um, there There's several lines here that I like a lot where he talks about uh, how the school, despite having a very strict drug policy, doesn't enforce it that much. Yeah. Not, not, not out of any like, oh, we don't care or like rich parents, but the quote I have here is they operate under the belief of, uh, you know, uh, who would want to compromise their fist. Faculties chemically even come here to ETA, where the whole point is to stress and stretch your faculties along multiple vectors. With the footnote that I thought was actually a great line uh, that these uh, academy higher ups, the idea that all prestigious academy operate under the false notion that all applicants are there because they want to be, considering, (laughs) considering it an impossibility that it could possibly be their parents who are former tennis players who are really just on their asses about this. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: And it is. So, I mean, the the coach is this like German, uh, like super strict guy. Uh, Shit. I think is his name.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, so, yeah. So you get the sense, like, it's not an easy thing physically to be there, but it's also an academically grueling school. Like it, I think uh, the moms is the one in charge of the uh, the curriculum. So mm. it's also, you know, both both intellectually and physically just draining. Um,
0: right. And he they mentioned that it is very, very hard. Uh, he talks about the pro-rectors who are uh, advisors, both academic and athletic. He has here that they're all pretty much miserable. They fall into the old thing of uh, they were former students there couldn't hack it in tennis and now have to return to instruct because it's really the only thing like if you can't cut the mustard in competition that's the only thing your skill level qualifies you for is teaching at the place where you learned you'd never make it
1: (laughs) yeah they're not they some of them they go out and play tournaments um they're not quite good enough to be pro they're really good they're just you know they're at that level where and a lot of the the and I think this is a, a cool, another cool thing that it brings up is this idea of being like really, really good at something, but not good enough to be the best, you know? Right. So like you have a lot of, and maybe it's luck, but it, it, in a lot of cases, it's just like, okay, you're really good at this thing, but like your ability only takes you to a point where you're really good at it. You can't get to a point where you're on the pro tour.
0: Right. And you only find that out at a place like a prestigious academy, because more than likely in your own little fishbowl, like as a child and a teenager, you've been, you know, big fish in a small pond. It's only when you're thrown in with the other elites that you get that humbling to find out where you really like, yeah, okay, you're better than everyone else. Where do you rank amongst the greats? Like a lot of people are going in for a big disappointment.
1: The other thing that coincides with how smoking is this incredible rise in rank in terms of like mm-hmm. national rank like i think i think they're the guy who's the best player in the country he's neither number 1 or number 2 is also at enfield john wayne and how is like in the top 10 like he's he's in the top 10 in the country by the time like we meet him in this book mm-hmm. and that's attributed to uh you know, it, it comes at the same time as his smoking pot. So like, it's like the the two are linked somehow that we don't really understand.
0: Do we understand (sighs) eventually, or do we just not understand at this point?
1: I don't know. I mean, I don't remember ever having an idea, but I know that like, it's part of like the pressure cooker that he's trying to build with Hal. And like, in terms of like, there's a lot going into what, you know, there's a lot going on for Hal and he's not necessarily making a decision one way or the other he's just doing what other people are telling him to do mm-hmm. and it sort of creates this like pressure cooker inside of him um, that hits a you know a climax or a breaking point
0: okay okay uh the end of that chapter we just have a brief thing about Mario we already discussed and uh the prince's wife is back and it's se- we don't get her reaction, but it seems to indicate that she is discovering the attaché, watching uh, the entertainment. So we'll probably get back to that. So I think
1: she also starts watching it, and then she becomes transfixed too. Oh, okay. And, like I think there's this series of like people who come to see what's wrong, and then like they start watching too. So like uh, I don't know if it's it's with him or with someone else. But I, th- I think it's with him where that happens. Um, okay. Where there's just like, you see the, the lethality of this.
0: Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to more details on this. He's, he's setting up some layers. I like, food.
1: Yeah. I feel like I'm giving some spoilers and I, I don't think that it matters that much um, what, what I'm spoiling, but I'm, I'm sorry uh, if I am. Uh, Cause I don't think I've I've done anything major.
0: <laughs> so, all right, uh, we have our last chapter for this uh, autumn year of dairy products from the American heartland and we get to meet a character who will uh, loom over some more of the book Don Gately oh he's great yeah I'm liking him so far again Ostrov said that uh, the first time he met Shane Gillis he immediately thought of him as Don Gately and that's exactly how I'm picturing him reading <laughs> you know, Pretty just just a, just yeah. a large oafish, Man, uh, yeah,
1: he's and he's got like a so in the book he's described as having like a big square head, right? Um, and he's also like like pretty jacked, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, in the book, like he's
0: um, he seems like a big refrigerator of a guy. Like.
1: Yeah, and he is. So it's funny because uh, another when I first read this book, uh, I'm a, I'm a person who is in recovery uh, from alcoholism so this book sort of has, and I have two years. So i never read this book, you know, in recovery, but I think a lot of it spoke to a part of me that, um, I didn't necessarily always realize was a problem, which Mm. is that like addiction and and things like that. Right. Gately is an addict, right? Like he is a drug addict who, you know, identifies as an alcoholic because he wants to do AA um but the the first portion where we see him is him getting himself into some really big trouble
0: right yeah it it, it hints here uh <laughs> Wallace starts off with just the notion of saying that uh drug addicts who resort to crime tend to stray pretty far from uh violent crime as opposed to burglary really their crime is only based around how much it affords them access to their addiction i thought that was interesting yeah, I thought, that was good to, I, I thought that I thought that I thought that was definitely interesting and fair. A good point uh, that would be that would be something I would like to point out to uh, you know my my very very Republican uncles whenever they talk about you know crime. It's a, you know these guys they they always imagine you know somebody breaking into their house that they can shoot down, and that's like as much of a personality as they ever imagine in that person.
1: Yeah, I actually. I work at a, uh, a drug and alcohol rehab facility now. Oh. And, uh, so not, not too dissimilar from Don, Ga- Don Gately, who is like the, he, he watches over a house, but like, I, I don't know if you, you've had any experience with like working with people in addiction or, or whatever,
0: but Many members of my family, the majority of my family are either current or recovering addicts of one way, one stripe or another.
1: Yeah. And, and I think everyone in Philadelphia has the experience knowing someone or knowing someone who knows someone who's had an experience with heroin and like, I don't know. It's, it, it, to me, it's spot on. Like, they're not, they're not trying to be violent. They don't want to go to jail. Um, They're just trying to finance their habit, Um, which isn't, you know, again, like judge it if you want. Uh, That's fine. But they're not trying to hurt anyone. They're just trying to get theirs, you know?
0: yeah now nah, i have ugh, i i have my own personal feelings about that, which is uh i have let's just say i have a very close relative that uh got into heroin and I learned some unique things- like this person has since kicked the habit but uh despite being very close to me relationally, we have very little of a relationship now, and I think part of that is just and this is something that doesn't get talked about a lot like there was a point where she was missing for a bit and I was literally like calling the local morgues looking for a Jane Doe. Yeah. And it's, I feel horrible saying it, but like the truth is like when you've already had to protect your psyche enough to be like, Oh, well I'm going to get a call one day that she's dead. When that person recovers, it's kind of hard to bounce back from that when you've already like kind of accepted them as half dead for years anyway and then suddenly they're back to normal it's addictions bad for everyone
1: oh yeah and i think you know that's why part of the the recovery process is doing amends um you know and trying to trying to restore some kind of relationship as much as possible but Yeah. yeah it's it's wild like i mean yeah, and a lot of this book is about that. A lot of this book is about addiction and, mm. and people battling with it.
0: And Wallace you himself know. was a recovering addict from uh, alcohol, and I believe he said marijuana mm-hmm. as well, or at least admitted to it. Yeah, marijuana.
1: Yeah, and so like there's also like the metaphor of addiction for entertainment, true. Uh, as a- well,
0: a- again, what what are we ultimately chasing at the end? Yeah. Of life, so correct. Yeah. Uh, So if we could just run through this real quick. So Gately, again, we have this uh, description of drug addicts typically don't resort to violence, and Gately accidentally finds his way to it here. Uh, It's mentioned that he is very much a revenge person after being locked up for three months by an assistant DA in Boston. He and an accomplice, who is a character named Trent Quo Kite, who I assume is going to show up later with the Quebecois, Uh, They broke into the home of the assistant district attorney months later and only like did minor disturbance, like just enough to let people know they were there. Didn't really steal much after several months, you know, of everybody being weird and then calming down inside the house. The assistant DA received a letter in the mail of Gately and Kite in clown masks with the ADA's family's toothbrushes sticking out of their buttholes. (laughs) Presumably left behind For them to unwittingly brush their teeth with (coughs) That's pretty funny Pretty great Uh, So
1: yeah there's levels to this Like you see Caitly gets himself in Like serious trouble right before He goes into (coughs) Excuse me Right before he goes into kind of rehab Um,
0: Is that what we're about to get here With uh, with the elderly Quebecois man
1: Yeah. So, and then that's another thing. Like, there's the Quebecois separatists.
0: All right. Well, hold on. Let me let let me just read that summary real quick of what happens to that man, and then we can discuss. Because after that, we're we're done with uh, my notes. Yeah. Um, So he later does another home invasion of a elderly Quebecois man. They enter him and the other man enter, believing the whole family to be absent. This old man actually has a terrible sinus infection and has stayed home. And uh, unfortunately, he yells out to him in Quebecois French, but Gately doesn't understand that, you know, Oh, take the money, take this, et cetera, et cetera. Well, Gately gags the man, ties him up to keep him quiet, unaware of the incredible sinus infection. And this poor old man with no airway in his nose slowly suffocates to death through this, what's meant to be a, you know, just a nonviolent restraint, Th- essentially death by stuffy nose.
1: Yeah, so Gailey has kind of put himself into this bind where there's the ADA, right, who now despises him uh, and wants to put him away and, like, wants to just, you know, he's made an enemy of a really powerful person mm-hmm. in local law enforcement in a you know, assistant district attorney. But then there's also this Quebecois man who, you know, we'll find out is a big player in this terrorist group. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like he's really powerful as well so now Gately has screwed over someone in law enforcement and he's also screwed over someone who uh, is a really powerful terrorist mm-hmm. so like he, he's sort of caught between a rock and a hard place uh, when we, we meet him again and I don't know that he even realizes where do, you,
0: where, where do you hide when you've made when you've made yourself a major enemy of both the law and the crime world
1: Correct. And so I don't know that he even realizes it. I I don't, I don't remember exactly, Mm. Uh, but I know that like, yeah, he's got that, like, he's got these things kind of hanging over his head of he's made some really powerful enemies. Mm. Um, And so when we kind of get to him and get to his story, he's got a little bit more than a year sober and clean. um, And he's, he's, different he's changed but he's also worried about going back to that that old self you know mm-hmm. that old addict self
0: okay well mr clark i think uh i think we have wrapped up our little section here pages 33 to 60.
1: i'm, I'm really glad you you had me on here um i'm sorry if i spoiled anything
0: no that's fine i, w- I would like to have you on again when we're a little further along and you can expound more without really worrying about uh letting out too much
1: yeah there's a i'll I'll let you know there's a portion of the book that i i really like that i if i can request a a section yeah i would would love to do i can i can
0: i can tell from you holding up the book that we're we're reading from the same printing so so you're uh yeah big old big old blue and lime green
1: there's a um There's a a a forward from Eggers in the beginning, which is interesting, which is just like about the challenge of, uh, like, is it worth it to read challenging fiction? Mm -hmm. And you know, so like, is Infinite Jest worth it? And it makes an argument for it that says it is. Uh, So yeah, it's uh, I I, I like this edition. It's the only one I want to read from. I don't want. I don't. I don't. I don't like the new one. Ah. Uh, Yeah. This this is what I this is what I know.
0: Well, I'm I'm looking forward to the challenge again. I if nothing else, I'm very glad that I'm doing this podcast just because it means I'm I'm going to get through this.
1: Yeah, I, I, don't you just love like just having an extended conversation about a book? You know.
0: Oh yeah. Well, not only that, but I mean, the sheer fact that I'm because I'm having to summarize it and record episodes about it, I'm going to be reading it at such a slow pace that. It kind of removes, I mean, I'm still frustrated with some of it just because it's, it's a style I'm really not used to or a fan of. But it's, it's allowing for frustration while preventing frustrative burnout, which I think is what stopped me in my tracks the first time I tried to read this and I got like 400 pages in.
1: I see. So and that, that in itself is pretty impressive that you got that far. Mm-hmm. Most people do not. Uh, most people give up.
0: And, well, I'm stubborn.
1: <laughs> like, they, they hit a certain point where they're like, uh, okay, it's like enough, David Foster Wallace, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, which I, I can totally understand. I could totally understand giving up after 400 pages. Mm-hmm. Um, next, I would
0: under- Next time we talk, we should discuss uh, the article you sent me. E unum I read some of it today. I just hadn't realized when I asked her it was 44 pages. I just oh, read- yeah, it's
1: long. So it's just a really interesting take on fiction at the time. And it's kind of like a gives you a theoretical backdrop for... Right. It's, um, it,
0: it's applicable to what he's trying to do with this book. Uh, correct. His irony and... Yeah.
1: And it's like, what, what do you... So he's sort of trying to do something that goes beyond irony. Like, he doesn't want to be ironic. Mm-hmm. You know, he can't help it, but he thinks like the trap of modern society is like TV. He thinks has gotten really good at making fun of itself. Right. So like you can't criticize it because it can criticize itself better than the Simpsons can make fun of itself better than you can make fun of it. Mm. But
0: it made me me immediately think of, uh, when the daily show was becoming like a big source of journalism, but then whenever it was criticized would hide behind like, Oh, but it's, it's a comedy show. Like, correct, yeah. like not really acknowledging, like, no, you've kind of taken on a different level than that.
1: Yeah. So it's, you know, that, that's a really interesting point. It's, mm. it, it is like that. Um, but it, it's sort of like attack coming for this idea of like postmodernism is saying that like, just being smart and clever and breaking down the novel and making you aware that you're watching a story or that you're reading a story is not end in itself. And he's saying, I don't think that's true. I don't think that's what fiction is meant to do. And he really goes hard after some, some authors like uh, Brett Easton Ellis, okay, and, uh, a couple other guys who he thinks just aren't, they're disingenuous to the American people and, and, and what they're trying to do with their fiction. He wants to give people hope, and I think he's trying to do that to some extent with this book.
0: Okay. Well, shit, give us, giving us another reason to get through to a, another chapter and another episode of the I Hate Infinite Jazz Podcast. Who's next? Uh, next, I'm actually I'm doing an experimental one. I'm having on Katu King because her discussing this is a big part of the, it. Her discussing this on her Facebook during quarantine was where I finally got into, like, you know I really should get on top of that and do that fucking podcast already she's great oh, she's great yeah i'm actually- I'm having trouble finding a lot of guests just because it's I'm specifically trying to get performers, but you know it's a bit of a mixed bag. I'm gonna try to get McCusker, although God knows if that's even possible. I know he's a big fan of the book, so you know eh, maybe he'll feel proud of him he loves
1: a- he loves talking books yeah yeah he uh he he's a big DeLillo guy. I'll, I'll I'll shoot him. I'll text to them every so often about books. Um, and we just talk about what we're reading. It's pretty cool. I'm sure he would, he would at least like to, to chat a little bit about it.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, you know, what's actually really funny. I haven't promoted this podcast at all yet because I wanted to, uh, you know, I wanted to get a few episodes ready before really, and not to mention like Apple only like approved it a few days ago for iTunes. Yeah. But randomly, I was on the Matt and Shane subreddit, and somebody just brought up Infinite Jest out of nowhere, and I figured like, eh, "All right, fuck it. I, I, I guess I might as well post it here." I got fifty downloads just off of one post in like a subreddit thread.
1: That's wild.
0: So, yeah. So it's the the dogs out there are thirsty for knowledge. So yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a great. Uh, uh, it's like a bro-y kind of book to some extent, even though like an intellectual bro-y kind of book.
0: You see, I I intend to promote it on. There's a whole subreddit here the David Foster Wallace and Infinite Jest. I I kind of want to throw it out there where it's it's weird as as a fandom as a fandom. It's really strange to see people go like, I absolutely love this thing. I understand why a lot of people hate it. Usually, people are more like blind in their. Uh, you know, how much they're really trying to be fanatics of something.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's different. Um, it's definitely different. I think there are those like Bernie bro type fanatics for this book.
0: I've heard a lot of Bernie um, bro comparisons.
1: You know, another thing that's interesting that I'll say uh, for this book is you get like the, the character. Um, I also love Vonnegut. I heard you talking about Vonnegut. I love Vonnegut there's the character uh what's his name i guess james is that the, the father who spends like a decent portion of his film career just trying to make a film for how mm. and like he wants to make something to speak to how and and he's trying to communicate with how and kurt vonnegut has this philosophy in his writing where he says like you should only write for one person mm. so for him he wrote for his That's sister, And I think when his sister died, that's when he he sort of lost inspiration. He's like, I don't like have a literal person to write for anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, So like he kind of just ran out of stuff to write. Um, So I think that there's that interesting idea that's happening here too, which is like a character trying to speak to one person. Um, And I don't think David Foster Wallace is doing that so much, but I think it's definitely a major arc in the book.
0: Yeah, I'd say that's definitely a, a noble attempt. I mean, well, for one thing, you're always gonna get a more unique, uh sincere voice trying to write to one as opposed to appealing to trying to appeal to all.
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. All
0: definitely. right. On. Dude, let's wrap it up. Uh, let's just do our goodbyes real quick. I'll hit stop on record, and then you and I can keep chatting a little bit. But, yeah, Steve Clark, thank you very much for coming on the show. We will, uh, we'll see you again. Let me know what, you, what section you really want to talk about, and we'll bring you back on for it.
1: Cool. I really enjoyed this. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to me.
0: Uh, no problem. Again, we wouldn't be here if not for me arguing with you. So. <laughs> I love it. Great. All right. We'll see you next time.